So don't go all running now. We have we have good stuff. Maybe you can stand up for 10 seconds. But one of the things we do in Chad, in addition to being a children's hospital and a care delivery system, is we have quality standards and educational opportunities. We've got a good one for you tonight. So Eric's going to come down and talk about one of the things that Chad does to improve the value and quality of care delivered in pediatrics. We've got a couple of things. One of them is our mini fellowship series, and another is a guidelines uh, clearinghouse that looks at all of the myriad guidelines that get thrown at us through pediatric and other journals, and then makes recommendations on how we actually use them and implement them in pediatric care. So Eric's going to talk about how we got our speakers tonight in terms of the guidelines related to antibiotic use and what we're going to show you. Mark, you can start getting hooked up. So uh, I wanted to come and just kind of introduce, give a little bit of background uh, for where this talk came from and the specific topics for tonight. Um, so I'm kind of representing the CHAD Primary Care Committee. And so we meet on a monthly basis. We have representatives from each of the individual uh, Dartmouth sites. I'm usually a provider and a, a nurse leader in each of the sites. We have experts from the measurement team and from the informatics team joining us as well. Um, and so one of the subcommittees with this, as Keith just mentioned, is the CHAD Guidelines Clearinghouse. So obviously each year there are a host of clinical guidelines that are kind of thrown at providers coming from whether it's the AEP or the CDC or the American Heart Association, um, wherever committee you want to um, pick. Um, so one of the topics that we touch base on in the CHAD PCC group is um, that twice a year we'll review those guidelines that are coming from the various committees and kind of figure out which ones we think need to be broadly disseminated, which ones we think need to kind of be discussed internally a little bit more. Um, and so with that said, there were kind of four papers within the last three years that we thought were significant enough that we wanted to create a, a big enough CME um, agenda to be able to touch base on a lot of these. Um, so those one that, that I want to touch base on, so one of them is um, back in 2010, uh, the Pediatric Infectious Disease Society came out with a recommendation about management for community-acquired pneumonia in kids three and older. Um, that was then endorsed by the AEP into early 2011. Um, there was the, P, uh, the AEP came out with a uh, clinical guidelines uh, treatment and management guideline for acute otitis media, which initially was created in 2004 but revised in March of 2013. Um, there was an acute bacterial sinusitis one, um, again from the AEP, initially created in 2001, revised in July of 2013. And then actually a fourth one just came out recently, so after this talk was arranged. So in December of 2013, the AEP had their latest article talking about um, judicious use of antibiotics for upper respiratory tract infections. Um, so again, obviously four kind of key uh, you know, pieces of the puzzle that we manage in general pediatrics. And so we want to be able to create a forum to be able to talk about that. So um, Dr. Gwill and Dr. Smith uh, were recruited to help us out and to talk about these kind of um, topics for us. So I'll let them move forward. Thank you. All right, good evening. Well, we'll just jump right in. Um, so here are the three uh, sort of topics that we're going to discuss here to begin with. So the two clinical practice guidelines on acute otitis media and acute bacterial sinusitis in kids. And then the third one is more of a clinical report, not quite as in-depth, um, that discusses judicious antibiotic prescription practices. So we'll start out with acute otitis media. Um, so as Eric said, this is an update on the 2004 clinical practice guideline. 
and it addresses um, AOM and otherwise healthy children uh, ages six months to 12, 12 years. Now, um, we've got this broken down by a key action statement, and there's six um, there uh, at the top with the header. So this is, deals with the diagnosis in acute otitis media. And I know um, in my clinical practice, when I try and get an exam on kids, it always looks just like this. Um, the kids are happy, it's smiling, and it's all a piece of cake. But I have heard, though, that some, sometimes it can be something more like this. Now, the key to this with the clinical practice guidelines, and, and this was a big emphasis um, even with, within the changes from 2004, is that the, the stringent criteria for diagnosis are key. Um, and part of that is getting a good exam of not only what the tympanic membrane looks like, but mobility of the tympanic membrane. And the pneumatic otoscope is, is, um, is essential to that end. Um, even if you can just barely see a little teeny bit, teeny corner of the tympanic membrane, you can get it to briskly move, then you can rule out an acute otitis media. And um, it's really, uh, it's, it's just a key piece of equipment. And I know, um, well, so diagnosis is critical. Um, bulging of the tympanic membrane, new onset drainage, um, otalgia, and pain as far as symptoms go, that's the sort of number one um, um, pain that correlates with the diagnosis of acute otitis media, number one symptom rather. And then it, signs of inflammation. Just having a middle ear effusion is not sufficient. You actually have to have some, some signs of inflammation. And this is straight out of the AAP clinical guideline. You can see normal exam here, and then there are varying degrees, mild, moderate, and more severe, bulging of the tympanic membrane with inflammation and a mucopurulent to more purulent middle ear effusions. The second key action statement deals with assessing pain. Again, pain um, um, is the major symptom that correlates with the diagnosis of acute otitis media. And the, the authors recommend assessing this and treating it. And it's, it's nothing too exciting here. Acetaminophen or ibuprofen are the two sort of main oral agents. Topical anesthetic drops, um, they're okay to use, but you have to be careful in situations where there's perforation or a known tympanic um, uh, PE tube. If you have that in the, in the lidocaine or whatever you're using gets down into the middle ear, you can have some significant vertigo. Um, you can consider opiate analgesia. I don't know if that's something I'd recommend strongly, especially with the FDA's black box warnings with Tylenol with codeine in the sleep apnea population in kids. Um, and then uh, they sort of throw in there to kind of consider myringotomy. We're going to talk about that in a minute. The third key action statement deals with managing acute otitis media. And to take into consideration the severity, the age, the presence of drainage, and whether it's not it's unilateral or bilateral. In the next slide, we're going to look at a table from the, the, the paper. Um, and the two options essentially are antibiotic therapy or this observation period. And so this is new to the 2013 guidelines. And you have a sort of a, a two to three day period of observation where you can um, observe and properly selected patients, we don't necessarily see an increase in separative complications as long as close and sort of planned follow-up is ensured and you have a rescue antibiotic um, ready to go. So here's the table straight out of the, uh, out of the paper. And if you look, the, the upper column here deals with the different sort of clinical scenarios and here's your ages. So pretty much you have a, a clinical history of acute otitis media that fits and you've got a draining ear. Whether or not they're six months to two years or over two years, the recommendation is for antibiotics. Again, in either age group, the younger or the older group, if you have unilateral or bilateral with severe symptoms, they're going to go for um, antibiotics. If it's bilateral, 
without otorrhea, but you see acute otitis media on both sides, in the younger population, the recommendations for antibiotic therapy. In the older population, they recommend antibiotics or this observation period. And then in unilateral OM, without drainage, in both age groups, if they're clinically doing okay, again, you can treat them with antibiotics or do this close follow-up technique. The fourth key action statement set um, isn't much of a change from 2004. It talks about the different antibiotics that are recommended. So first-line treatment, if you're going to treat with antibiotics, are double-strength amoxicillin, double-strength um, or high-dose, rather, um, amoxicillin with clavulanate. If they're panallergic, they're second- and third-generation cephalosporins here. If they need IM, um, ceftriaxone, that's another option as well. This is sort of the second half of this table um, in, the, in the key action statement. It talks about treatment after failure of the initial antibiotics. And you can see if you started with amoxicillin, you can go to the uh, um, augmented version, or you can switch it up to ceftriaxone. Alternate treatments, again, ceftriaxone, clinda, with or without a third generation cephalosporin, Clinda, and then down in here, you'll sort of see this little corner where they sort of threw in tympanocentesis. Um, and it gets me back to that child and trying to, to get a good exam and, and trying to stick a needle in somebody's ear in clinic. <laughs> and I think this is one of those things that's sort of easier recommended, easier said than done. Um, one of our pediatricians actually forwarded me um, a link here to talk about this particular device. And this is basically um, uh, uh, a tympanocentesis needle that's coupled with the otoscope speculum, the disposable otoscope, otoscope speculum heads. One of my colleagues actually um, has used this and had some pretty, um, pretty good experience before he came here. And, and he said it, it, it's technically challenging. It's, it's really difficult. And the, and the issues with this are that it's extremely painful. And so um, it's difficult to do without one, um, um, having the child not mobile. And so even the act of like trying to put in local anesthetic just topically into the ear canal of a child and then suctioning it out and cleaning it, that alone could be a challenge. So my, my personal sort of opinion would be to go to something more like conscious sedation or a general mask anesthetic. And that brings up con considerations. Well, if you're going to be doing that, well, should you be putting in an ear tube or not? The, the, the technique and the training, it, this is difficult to do, even with specialized equipment. This handheld otoscope system, I, I think, I think would be. I don't know if I'd endorse it. Um, I think there may be some situations where, um, if you didn't have another option, you may sort of be forced to use that. But um, ideally, I think getting this kind of an exam and this procedure, you'd use an otologic microscope in, in either the ENT clinic or the the OR um, or a minor procedure room like pain-free, and uh, and you can use a tuberculin syringe aspirate. And again, if you're doing it under anesthesia, the question sort of begs to be answered, should we be putting in a P-tube or not? And I don't know if anybody has the right answer for that. Um, certainly in the kids that have complicated AOM, have meningitis or things like that, I'm throwing in a P-tube at that situation. But for the purpose of diagnosis or, or looking particularly at non-responsive kids and not moving to P-tubes, I don't know. I think um, certainly the, the people in my group are interested in potentially working with the pediatricians. If this is something that we see a lot of and need a system in place, I think um, Chad Prainfree or, or the OR 
and potentially working on a way to fast track these kids may be something to try. So I think we're open to that discussion. Um, I think there are a lot of questions to be answered with that. But I think pinning them down in clinic, um, um, I don't think that's the right answer. The key action statement five discusses um, some issues sort of beyond antibiotics. The prophylactic antibiotic recommendations were, I thought, a little big, to be honest with you. It says don't use them um, to reduce the frequency of recurrent AOM and don't use them for middle ears um, that have chronic effusions. But they were, I think they were a little bit vague. There was sort of an exclusion in one of the tables that said, but maybe for kids who otherwise would undergo PE tubes. And I don't know if um, this is a practice that sometimes I'll see in, in patients who have recurrent acute otitis media are coming to see me for PE tubes and are sort of on prophylaxis until they get to see me. Um, but I don't think they're a really straightforward recommendations within the guidelines for prophylaxis. And then PE tubes, the, uh, um, the current recommendation at least to offer PE tubes, you don't necessarily have to do it, but to start thinking about it and have it on the radar is after they've had three episodes of acute otitis media in six months or four in 12 months with one recently basically within the last six months. And this is sort of the starting point when I speak to families. Um, most of the time, um, these patients are referred to us and uh, they're sort of beyond this number, and which I think is good. I, I think, honestly, I think that's a, that's a pretty early time to jump on board and jump in the OR, but I th certainly think it's starting to start thinking about it. And then some fairly straightforward related recommendations, the Pneumovax, Influenza vaccine, um, you know, streptococcus and the H influenza are two of the three big players in all the ENT infections, and so clearly vaccinating kids is going to reduce some of those. And then breastfeeding recommendations, and then avoiding cigarette smoke. It's pretty clear cut. So those are sort of the AO, um, the acute otitis media recommendations um, from the updated clinical practice guideline. Let's blast through the acute sinusitis. So similar sort of thing, updated from a 2001 guideline deals with children aged 1 to 18 years with uncomplicated sinusitis, so, so no immunodeficiencies, no cystic fibrosis, no um, anatomic abnormalities. And again, the key is the diagnosis, and it's a clinical diagnosis. So the graph here is taken from the, the clinical guideline, and this is of an uncomplicated viral upper respiratory tract infection. Now we all know that viral upper respiratory tract infections and acute bacterial sinusitis all have nasal drainage, cough, and fever. Okay, so that's not the distinguishing sort of characteristics. What distinguishes them is the length and the severity of the symptoms. So persistent illness that lasts beyond 10 days. And so here you can see zero to 10 days, or actually 12 days. Symptoms that are lasting out here are more consistent with acute bacterial sinusitis and not a viral upper respiratory tract infection. A worsening course after initial improvement. So you can see fever spikes and then drops down. Sinonasal symptoms spike and then start to drop down. Anything that gets better and then um, gets uh, worse after getting better would fit more with bacterial sinusitis. And then severe onset fever, purulent drainage for three days. So you can see the fever sort of spikes for one, two days maybe. Anything that's up here for three days, again, more consistent with acute bacterial sinusitis. It's a clinical diagnosis, a presumptive clinical diagnosis is sort of how they word it. Imaging. Now this is really important. You don't need to get a CT scan. You don't need to get a plain film radiograph to diagnose bacterial sinusitis. And we still see this, and it's really frustrating because CT scans um, in kids, um, if you don't need them, I think cause more harm than good. The imaging results from viral upper respiratory tract infection look exactly the same as bacterial sinusitis. So it doesn't do anything to help you confirm or, or you know, negate your diagnosis. 
imaging, you should be only ordering if you have a complication that you think you're looking out for. So an intraorbital complication like a subperiosteal periorbital abscess or an intracranial complication like cavernous sinus thrombosis or uh, you know a brain abscess. Um, those sorts of things. And if you're going to do imaging, as an ENT surgeon, we usually look more towards the CT scan with contrast because it helps us operatively. But sometimes things like cavernous sinus thrombosis and some of the brain intracranial stuff, it can be harder to see on a CT and the MRI is better. And they're a little bit wishy-washy in the, in the clinical guidelines. Um, if you're really concerned about one of these kids, a lot of times the kids going under anesthesia are pain-free to get this, you get both. So initial management, similar to the uh, otitis media, um, this is a table taken right out of there. And so again, the, the treatment options are not sort of in question. These all say antibiotic therapy on there. So it really kind of comes down to accurately diagnosing acute bacterial sinusitis. We really feel that, or the AAP really, really feels that with that diagnosis, you're, you're going to want to treat them with antibiotics. Really the only place where the observation pops into play, oops is up here when you have persistent, so that beyond the 10 days, symptoms of a viral upper respiratory tract infection, beyond 10 days without any other illness. So no otitis media, no pharyngitis, no signs of intracranial stuff. And again, within two to three days and you uh, ensure close follow-up. <clears throat> the fourth action statement deals with the uh, antibiotic choice. So again, ENT, we're big with our amoxicillin, our augmentin. If there's pen allergies, you go to some of the second and third generation cephalosporins. So this is your initial management. One of the new things with this is this reassessment thing within 72 hours. So with the, the clinical practice guidelines now, they recommend reassessing the patient within, within three days. And if you see that the um, treatment is working, you keep going on. If not, if they're worse, if you initially observe, you treat them with um, Amox or Augmentin. If you treat them with Amox initially, you bump it up to Augmentin. If you did Augmentin the first time, you can go to Clinda with uh, um, uh, Septicine or potentially some of these other agents. If they didn't improve after 72 hours, you can continue to watch or you can initiate the first line therapy or bump it up anywhere in between. So I think fairly straightforward. The adjuvant therapy that's uh, discussed, the AP doesn't make any strong recommendations here. When you read the, the, the literature with intranasal steroids and saline um, irrigations for uh, chronic sinusitis in kids, there actually is some evidence that it helps with nasal airflow and with improved symptoms. I usually will prescribe nasal hygiene for kids when they have acute, or acute sinusitis, which involves at least the saline rinses. The Neomed rinse, I think, is a good way to go. Um, you don't necessarily have to use this particular one, but I think it works pretty well. They have good videos online that show kids doing it, so the families have access to that. Intranasal steroids, hit or miss on the acute sinusitis, at least in my practice. But systemic decongestants, mucolytic agents, really aren't um, going to play a role in that. And antihistamines only if they have allergies. If not, they're not going to do anything to dry them up. All right, and the last one here is really pretty quick. And so this, this, this is a nine-page review that was published last month that looked at prescribing um, strategies that uh, um, are of use in um, upper respiratory tract infections. And so, again, it really just reiterates what we kind of talked about with acute otitis media and the bacterial sinusitis, that you have to use the correct, correct criteria for diagnosis. If you can identify a bacterial infection, that's the trick. And it's to reduce the treatment of antibiotics with um, 
viral infections. Uh, a lot of work has gone into weighing the benefits versus the harm of antibiotics. And in the, this article, they talk about acutitis media, the bacterial sinusitis, and um, streptococcal pharyngitis. And the AAP feels pretty strongly at, um, unless you've clinically improved after that period of observation that antibiotics um, are more benefit than harm. And then use judicious prescribing techniques. Use an appropriate antibiotic. One of the things that they talk about is to avoid things like um, azithromycin. It just doesn't cover things well, and it really shouldn't play a role in, in a lot of head and neck infections. Um, use the appropriate dose. A lot of the antibiotics you'll see are at the high dose, the double-strength amoxicillin, the augment, and the ES. And then use it for the shortest duration that you can. But also keep in mind that this role of observation with delayed prescription techniques, so that two- to three-day window where you can watch and see if they're going to clinically get better, keep that in mind as well. So that's it, at least from the head and neck standpoint, um, in our perspective. I think I'll hand things over to Lou, and maybe we'll take questions at the end. Okay. Well, Mikey, did you send the, the link to the... Oh, yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Mikey's the pediatrician. Yeah. I, I talked to Mark. It's just out in the boonies, you know, an hour away. You just can't get kids in. Um, so it's a struggle as far as how you get somebody Maybe I'm ambitious, but you know, five minutes. I've had a mirror out of me myself, so I, I understand the pain. Yeah. Huh? Um, so are you going to go for it? Are you going to go for it? We may. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's tricky because you run out of choices. And I, I really fear the um, quenolones for kids. And is it on a Mac? I don't know if you can get rid of it, but, I, but just the absolute that's, that's, this is the you know, Back in residency days, you know, did it with a, um, a bent spinal needle and a um, tuberculosis. That was scary to me. But some of those toys, they look like control better, but I don't know. Is my program actually on here, or is it? Is it still on here or did it go? It's still on. Is it still on? Oh, there it is. Oh, because it's turning the same. So I thought we'd have a little bit of fun at the end with a few people that are remaining. Thank you very much. Um, and as we're talking about uh, uh, community-acquired pneumonia, have a putative patient and see what you would do, even those of you who are not pediatricians or even not physicians. So let's, let's uh, see. So you're seeing a 10-year-old boy who has a fever up to 104, a wet cough but no sputum, sick about two days and getting worse fully immunized and previously healthy, respiratory rate is 20, oxygen saturation is 95 on room air, he has crackles in the mid-lung fields bilaterally, decreased breath sounds in the bases left more than right. So, let's see here. What are you going to do? Are you going to do a chest x-ray, a blood culture, both or neither? You've got 30 seconds to make your choice on your own. <laughs> 
30 seconds. You mom Jackson standing around our forms. And when we get CME, you're going to fill out the form. 10, 9. We probably could have done this in 15 seconds. That's okay. <laughs> Okay, so 73% say neither, 27% say chest x-ray. Oh, somebody said both. No, that's right, 73 and 27. I was thinking 75. Okay, so that's good. There's no right or wrong answer. Let's go to the next question. <laughs> Are you good admitting to the hospital? Yes or no? This one's easy. I mean, this one should take less than 15 seconds. <laughs> I think, oh, there we go, okay, only six, okay, so everybody says no, okay, so one more, pharmacotherapy, are we going to use amoxicillin, second or third generation cephalosporin, doxycycline, whoops, wait a minute, I closed the poll, let's go back, I'm sorry, <laughs> now let's go, okay, pharmacotherapy, um, excuse me, amoxicillin, second, third generation cephalosporine, doxycycline, a macrolide, or nothing. And it, uh, okay, 75%, whoa, guy, you guys are good. Okay. It came up too fast. It came up too fast. It didn't give me the opportunity to put up the timer. We only, oh, we only got four, three and one. Okay, never mind, let's keep going. That's right. Can't avoid the answer. That's okay. Oh no. Sorry. That's okay. That's okay. Keep going. Okay, now you get. It's going to be different. Watch. It's going to be different. Okay. Okay. Sixty-four amoxicillin. Some second, third generation cephalosporin, and uh, some none, okay? Okay, so this is the Community Acquired Pneumonia Guidelines, published in 2011 in Clinical Infectious Disease uh, as an electronic publication. And actually, I'm going to show you first what we actually, what we do here. This is Tiffany Milner's data. She uh, participated in a chart review as part of a consortium with Chad, Hasbro, and Rochester, um, looking at uh, how... Uh, community-acquired pneumonia is treated, and this was this was after the guidelines came out. This is two years from 2011 through 2012. 113 children. This is at Chad. Um, only only 39 pneum uh, pneumonia admissions were evaluated when those were, that were excluded were excluded. I didn't realize this had the transitions. I, I stole shamelessly from her. Um, so, of the and this is all children who made it to the inpatient arena. 37 had CBCs, 30 had blood cultures. Of those, two were positive for pneumococcus. 21 had uh, viral testing. Of those, nine were positive, eight for RSV and one for influenza B. All had chest x-rays, and a third of them went to the PICU. Oh, and four had chest tubes. The admission, the, this is antibiotics prior to admission. Again, the predominance, over 50% were amoxicillin. Uh, two had cephalosporins, two had azithromycin, and one had uh, levofloxacin. Emergency room antibiotics, 
Uh, most had uh, cephalosporins or cephalosporins plus azithromycin. There was also cephalosporin plus vancomycin and azithromycin alone. And these are, again, children who were who admitted from the emergency room. When they got to the inpatient side, uh, of these 39 children, 16, so almost uh, half, had cephalosporins or ceftriaxone and azithromycin were 14, ceftriaxone and vancomycin were four, three had other, one had amoxicillin and one had azithromycin. Discharge antibiotic was primarily cephalosporin and amoxicillin with a, a smattering of other things. So this was chart review of what was done in this institution for pediatric inpatients in calendar year 2011 and 2012. Okay, so moving on to the guidelines. How do we compare to uh, what's recommended? The, they also break it down into various, into various areas. One is the site of care for community-acquired pneumonia. And the decision through admission is if you have moderate to severe uh, symptoms are three to six months old or less with suspected bacterial community-acquired pneumonia, uh, if there's a suspected or documented pathogen of increased virulence, or if there's concern about the quality of care at home, the, the concern about the ability of the parents to provide adequate care at home, all of these are strong recommendations. Um, they would warrant an ICU monitoring or mo ICU or monitoring capability if they needed obviously invasive or non-invasive ventilation, had impending respiratory failure, had concern for circulatory stability, um, had oxygen saturation less than 92% on uh, inspired oxygen of 50% or better, uh, and had an altered mental status. However, the severity of illness scores should not be the sole criterion, and there are several severity of illness scores. That shouldn't be the sole criterion for a decision to transfer to the unit. I don't think any of us would argue with any of these as a reason to go to the ICU. The biggest things have to do with uh, di what diagnostic tests are indicated and what are the anti-infectives. Uh, blood cultures are not recommended for outpatients. Uh, they're recommended for inpatients, um, in, in, actually in all situations. Outpatients, if they're not failing to improve, but if outpatients are not failing to improve, they're often going to end up as inpatients. If it's a child who can produce a sputum, then certainly a gram stain in culture is appropriate. Urinary antigens are not felt to be helpful. Viral pathogens, uh, doing a DFA for viral pathogens is helpful and is primarily helpful in moving away from antibiotic therapy in those who are documented to have viral pathogens. So the, the recommendation is that if, if they're available, uh, testing for viral pathogens is, is appropriate. Uh, what sort of ancillary testing? Um, again, CBC is not necessary in the outpatient arena, but is appropriate if they're more severe uh, or, or, and actually if they're admitted. Um, and acute phase reactants are not routinely uh, recommended, but may be helpful. Chest x-rays not recommended routinely in the outpatient arena, but in the inpatient arena. However, repeat chest x-rays, follow-up chest x-rays to document clearing are not considered to be, um, to be necessary. I will put an editorial comment at this point, because the, the, the patients I usually see are not this community-acquired pneumonia patients. But by the time they get to their second, third, fourth, fifth episode of pneumonia, and you're asking me to see them, it is nice to have some chest x-rays to document what's going on um, when, when you get to, to subsequent uh, episodes of pneumonia. Certainly, if they have uh, life-threatening uh, or severe um, pneumonia, then a trach aspirate if they're intubated, uh, a, a bronchoalveolar lavage or biopsy is indicated only if it's an immunocompromised patient 
or one who has a, uh, a severe pneumonia is not responding to, to uh, treatment. So the big things are blood cultures only on inpatients, sputum gram staining culture if they're available, no urinary antigens, yes, viral pathogens if available. Oh, I skipped atypical bacteria. Uh, if, if it's a, and this is sort of where, if you think they may have an atypical pathogen, it's appropriate to look for it. That's pretty broad, that's pretty wide open. Um, and chest x-rays are appropriate for inpatients, not necessary for outpatients, and follow-up x-rays not needed. What about antibiotics? Interestingly, not recommended as a routine for preschool. Um, amoxicillin should be the standard for immunized uh, preschool uh, and school-aged children suspected of bacterial infections. Uh, macrolide, if they're suspected or documented of having an atypical infection. And antiviral infection, infect, shoot, antiviral treatment is recommended for suspected or documented influenza. On the inpatient side, again, amoxicillin or ampicillin or PEN-G for those who've been appropriately immunized, a third-generation cephalosporin for those who are insufficiently immunized, or if there's PEN-resistant pneumococcus in the community. Um, a macrolide plus a beta-lactam if you have a, a, a typical organism, and vancomycin or clindamycin plus a beta-lactam for staph. Uh, the, the mantra over and over is to minimize antibacterial resistance, and this sort of goes to what Mark was getting at in that last article about judicious use in upper respiratory infection also. Um, minimize exposure, minimize the spectrum that you're using, minimize the dose, minimize the duration. Uh, interestingly, when they started talking about duration, 10 days is what's been studied, but the general consensus of the panel was that less, a, a shorter treatment uh, may be very effective in, in many situations. It's just not been studied. Uh, and especially when you're dealing with mild pneumonia or an outpatient situation. And resistant organisms may require a longer treatment. What about the complicated ones? Paranumonic effusions uh, may be suggested by history and exam and confirmed by chest x-ray, ultrasound, or CT. They recommend drainage if the size is sufficient or, or is, is, is significant or the patient is compromised. And whether you do a tube drainage or a VATS is basically local decision and local comfort based on the comfort of your surgeons with which to do. If you, if, they, if you feel like, or if there is an empyema, fibrinolytics are, are appropriate. And if there's a persistent effusion after drainage, then open drainage or, and or decortication is uh, appropriate. They don't feel like testing of the fluid, uh, other than cell count and differential and cultures, is appropriate. That being chemistry is not usually helpful. So you send it for cell count, differential, culture, and, and let it go with that. Your antibiotic therapy in the paranumonic effusions is based on the um, identification and susceptibility when available, but as we all know, by the time they, they get to the point of being tapped, they've often been treated, and you don't get viable organisms, so then you have to go with, with um, the guidelines for the hospitalized patients, which is back to the amoxicillin, or if you're suspicious of, of other organisms, appropriate uh, antibiotics. And the duration is based on the adequacy of drainage and response, but often two to four weeks is needed. So these guys get treated for longer and they run up our length of stay significantly. If they're failing to respond after 48 to 72 hours, then that's when your clinical and laboratory assessment of the severity of illness is appropriate. That's where you may look at your, at your um, not only CBC, but other, other laboratory markers. 
uh, certainly a, a repeat imaging for progression, uh, consideration of a, either a change in pathogen or an additional pathogen. If the child is intubated, then in this situation, getting a bronchoalveolar lavage would be appropriate. And consider a percutaneous lung aspirate or open biopsy uh, if they're failing to respond. If you have a pulmonary abscess or necrotizing pneumonia, again, IV antibiotics, but, but for the most part, invasive procedures are not needed in this situation. Uh, most abscesses will drain spontaneously through the bronchus, and you often don't want to go putting in a chest tube or, put, or, or tapping the chest because you may end up with a, with a draining fistula. So most of the time, uh, you're not going to need to be, do invasive procedures there to treat them longer. Um, what about discharge from the hospital? Uh, they need to be clinically improved for 12 to 24 hours with adequate oxygen saturation, good mental status, and reasonable work of breathing. They need to be able to tolerate their home regimen, and the caregivers, again, need to be capable of complying with the home regimen. If you have a chest tube, out for 12 to 24 hours. And the question of parenteral uh, outpatient treatment versus oral treatment is, again, to the discretion of the provider based on the severity of the illness. Um, what do you do about prevention? Obviously, immunization, immunization, immunization for uh, bacterial and influenza. Immunizing caregivers of young children who are too young to get the flu shot. And RSV prophylaxis for high-risk infants. So how did we match up to the others in the consortium in terms of our providers? Uh, we, we saw, you saw what our providers did. If you look at the consortium is on the left and DHMC is on the right, uh, in the outpatient arena, we the narrow spectrum is the lighter and the, the broad spectrum or non-narrow spectrum antibiotics is the uh, darker. And we did about the same as the consortium as a whole. Uh, in the emergency room, we had no narrow spectrum antibiotics. They were all something else. Uh, the consortium had uh, a little bit better performance there. On the inpatient side, we had very little narrow antibiotics and mostly broader spectrum. The consortium did a bit better. And at discharge, again, we had only less than 25% narrow antibiotics. And I failed to ask Tiffany whether, whether this is percentage of cases by local or whether this is total patients overall, uh, that being how did the patient numbers match up across different institutions. Uh, but this was what, what she, she said uh, compared. So practical application. There's another article that was published just this month in, in pediatrics with another uh, retrospective chart review from four freestanding children's hospitals uh, questioning, is there a difference in outcome of narrow versus broad spectrum antibiotics in hospitalized patients with uh, community acquired pneumonia? And these four hospitals were Vanderbilt, Children's Mercy, Seattle, and Cincinnati, so pretty good hospitals. Um, they had 785 patients with 492 charts reviewed <coughs> retrospectively. Interestingly, there was fairly even division of, long, uh, of narrow spectrum and broad spectrum antibiotics. And they looked at length of stay, duration of oxygen need, duration of fever, cost per day, and pharmacy cost per day, and readmission was seven days. And there was no difference. There was no difference in narrow versus broad spectrum antibiotics uh, in this spectrum. You ask? Not knowing the study design, but wouldn't those that were sicker be given the broader spectrum? So, that wasn't specifically addressed, that the, the severity of illness was not addressed. 
Uh, but you, but yeah, you would think, you would think that those who were sick, there is room, there is room in the in the the, the, the guidelines for using different things. The, the the narrow spectrum is for standard community acquired pneumonia, broad spectrum for for sicker patients. Yeah, but it was just interesting. Their question was, when you look at what at what we did. We didn't do very well with narrow, we didn't do very well with prescribing narrow spectrum antibiotics. Um, and what they're saying from their retrospective chart review is there's no difference in outcome overall in the in the total cohort of patients between narrow spectrum and broad spectrum antibiotics when, when that was the choice. So it was an interesting application, retrospective application of the guidelines questioning the decision to make the recommendation for narrow versus broad spectrum. Excuse me, and it is in this month's pediatrics, and mine appeared on my desk, I think, yesterday. <coughs> so, given that, back to our um, back to our 10-year-old boy. Fever, fever, same, same, the question is, would you change any of the answers that you gave before, having now heard this? Somebody left. Okay, most would not. Very few would. So maybe, maybe somebody hadn't uh, hadn't heard the message before. And the, and I, the, the 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 putative patients. There's not an absolute right or wrong answer. I mean, you know, there's for any of those questions, except maybe first line antibiotics being being amoxicillin in a, in a patient for whom it was was uh, otherwise uh, or otherwise not contraindicated. So. Thank you. I'm willing to take questions. I don't know whether people are still out there in the in the hinterlands either. And, and Mark will come up and take some questions. Is there somebody? No, that's me. And Mark. It's just us. We uh, we, we lost them. Yes. Thank you for the talk. Both both talks were really very very helpful. Um, just one comment um, with prescribing amoxicillin clavulanic acid. It's one of the medications that I see the most errors, both made by pharmacy and also in order, and just making sure while we're doing that high dose, it is the ES formulation, um, because you'll have very upset patients with wicked diarrhea and other Yes, thank you. And it actually makes using the ABS worthwhile. I've had a couple people catch pharmacy errors with the ABS. Oh. Because they don't bring a prescription in. So it's okay. Nice. Comparing the ABS versus what was on the bottle? Yeah, I asked him to do it because I've had the errors a couple times. Mm. So, so what is it? It's a higher ratio of moxicillin? The ratio of moxicillin clavicillin acids is a higher ratio. Oh. And yeah, if you, get the, if you get the regular augmentin, then, then the, you get too much clavicillin acid with the higher dose of moxicillin. Right. It's very confusing. Yeah. If you look it up under a moxicillin cloud, you get a different set than if you write augmentin. So you can get the lower concentrations of clavulonic acid if you write moxicillin clavulonic acid as opposed to augmentin in EDH. If you write augmentin, it'll give you the higher clavulonic acid as a default. Which is the one you use for regular It'll give it to you if you look at that way. Yeah. Yes. The thing I'm concerned about in the new sinusitis guidelines, which I generally like, is the issue of kids with runny nose for 10 days. If the children are in daycare, it's highly likely that the history is going to be drippy nose for three days, maybe. But if you don't ask, and then maybe it got a little bit better. Then it got worse again, and then it got better. And it's really not very possible to separate out 10 days. So I'm. Uh, I just don't know if there's any solution to that. I think you have to 
take it in the context of the home and the daycare and the waxing and waning. Any yeah. other suggestions from anyone else? Otherwise, yeah, we're going to treat everything. Other than one that goes from the clear runny nose to the yucky dark green one with a fever. <laughs> Yeah, but you guys have all three. There's some kids that there's pretty much from like September to March. They're yeah. just and they're not sick. They're running around. It's, it's clear or kind of cloudy, but they look okay. They're not spiking temps. They, you know, they're coughing at night a little bit or they're coughing a little bit, but it's not horrible. <laughs> I think it's you know it's worth discussing with the family and say you know well they're you know, they they do meet some criteria for the bacterial thing we're not sure let's watch for a bit and if they're doing okay I think it's an option to continue to watch. I'm really concerned at the level of trying to reduce the use of antibiotics and coming out with a statement that. Yeah. Right. Uh, yeah. So when when does it when do we come when do we pull back too far? Because you know obviously they're getting at let's try and reduce the amount of antibiotics we're prescribing. You know AOM diagnosed too much. Acute bacterial sinusitis probably diagnosed too much. Um, and I think um, you know and, and I don't know what at what point we're going to start to see separate complications pop up. It doesn't look like we've seen that yet. At least the data suggests that we're doing okay. Um, but you're right. You know if we start not treating things, at what point is that going to pop up on the radar? Probably infrequently enough to. Yeah. I was just going to make a comment. I think in general, the observation is an option. Um, it's been something that a lot of families are embracing. Yeah. So I certainly had, I mean, they're giving, you know, I don't want to do antibiotics if I don't have to. Great, you don't have to. I want you to wait three days, call me, you know, we'll, we'll discuss kind of the options from there. Um, so I think the fact that that's been an option and now been approved thing for a while overall has been a really useful piece. Because um, I think a lot of families have kind of heard that message a little bit um, and are much more willing to observe than they were even when I started, you know, 10 years ago. What do you do for your duration of treatment as a sinusitis? What do you do? So, um, you know, it's, it's funny. To be honest with you, we don't see, as an ENT, I don't see a lot of the acute bacterial sinusitis. Same with acute otitis media. I, I infrequently see that. I see a lot more of the chronic stuff. Um, when I do, well, if you, if you look at the recommendations, there's sort of two ways you can do it. There's anywhere from sort of 10 to 20, up to 28 days of antibiotic therapy. You can just sort of lay it out there like that. Or you can do seven days beyond the period when they become symptom-free. Um, I kind of like the second one better. Um, but there's some chronic sinusitis kids we treat for like three weeks and like don't bat an eye. Um, so I do think you have to kind of think maybe beyond that 10-day you know, 10 to 14 day that we, we sort of get stuck with with um, some of the other infections. So I think the seven days beyond is, is, is a reasonable thing to go. Yeah. Is, is there any role for? Sorry, I was ask, what do you do? What do I do? Yeah. You know, I usually treat them for at least 72 hours after their symptoms go away. And I try to use less rather than more. Yeah. So I, I, I think that's. But I think Eric's right too. That a lot of parents now are coming in. They'll live with a snotty nose. And as long as their kids are, their appetite's good and their activity level is good, it's more the constitutional symptoms that. What do you? What is three days after your symptoms go away? I mean, just have a little Appetite It's like, when do we stop? Appetite normal, activity level normal. Teenager, right? I'm a teenager. <laughs> my head hurts, my stomach hurts, my nose is running and stuffy. Like, then you treat for 21 days like that. <laughs> <laughs> but my stomach hurts from our bed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was going to ask a bit off topic as far as the guidelines go, but 
for the kids with tubes where we're using Cipridex for everything for drainage. Yeah, yeah. Where are we going next when the Cipridex isn't working quite the way we want it to? Um, I mean, that's obviously the first drop that you, you know, we end up using, but we still end up getting a lot of people that are using by mouth antibiotics you know, as a first line instead of drops. And then, so what yeah. are kind of the next group? Because obviously there's a lot of kids with tubes out there, and so it's just nice to talk about the options for treatment for them. So for tube otorrhea, I mean, up to 50% of kids who have tubes are going to drain at one point or another. So I'll give kids and their families a prescription for ophloxacin, and that's sort of my first line therapy in uncomplicated delivery. If it gets, um, if they call and it's not responding to ophloxacin, so depending on where they live, if they're far, it's hard to get in for a suction debridement, then I'll up it to Cipridex. See how that goes. If that doesn't work, then at that point, I usually, if they don't respond to Cipridex, I either um, will have them come in and I'll physically suction out their ear, which is, that's a huge, that's a huge part of getting draining ears to stop draining. It's just debreeding it because the drops can get in better and then you can actually get to the source. Or if they can't do that and it's really problematic, I'll put them on an oral antibiotic and, and double therapy. But as, as we're doing that, I'm thinking, okay, we got to get them in to suction them out within a week or so if they're not getting better. Is that reverse sedation? What's that? That is not actually. So what we usually do, they, they, depending on the age of the child, they usually don't like it, but we, we, um, we have the parents sort of bear hug them in it. It's like a dental chair, the ENT exam chair. They lean back, we bear hug them, and I have one of the nurses hold their head, and it's loud. It's not particularly painful, but it's just loud, so it's scary for them. Um, but it takes about two seconds, and we just suck it out, send it for culture, and then I can install drops there. I can use the, we have the pneumatic otoscopes that we use under the microscope. You actually can put the drops in, and then you put that on and, and you shove it. You know, you can shove it right through the, the tube pneumatically. Um, and, uh, and, and, you know, even, and it's funny, you know, you'll have MRSA on the cultures and things like that. The MICs are so high with the topical antibiotics. Even if they come back as, as resistant on the, on the sensitivities, you can still treat them with stuff like Cipro and things. I don't necessarily say, oh, well, it's not going to respond. You can still hit them pretty hard. Because those MICs are serum levels. Yeah. Those are. Those are it's like a thousand. I don't, I don't yeah, know what yeah. it is. It's I mean, astronomically what higher. Top of it. A little off subject, but when I first came here 17 years ago or so, at Buck Road, we had the non disposable otoscope. Uh, Plastic covered, what do you call it? It's nothing. Speculum? Speculum. Speculum, right. And I could get such good pneumotoscopy uh, with that because it has a gent, it has that, yeah, nice that curvy edge. Yeah. Curve, and it's not sharp. So that when you get a seal, the kids are not upset. And then we switch to this cheap uh, disposable. Yeah. And the kids, I can't teach the residents how to use it without the kids hurting. No, it's and uncomfortable, I, yeah. I think it's actually meant that fewer people are using the mortoscopy. And I don't think it's uh, a good decision. Yeah, I, I agree. Anyone else, did all the practices have the disposable now? If we used to do pneumotoscopy, I'd put a little rubber band. Have you ever lost it in the ear? <laughs> no. <laughs> we have a handheld tympanometer. Uh -huh. that we use for the kids and that gives you the same information as the yes. otoscopy. Well, you have a flat line, you know, you have the flat line. you're trying to train someone to look and learn. Those yeah. speculate hurt. Oh, right. Right. You have a chronic kid that's been in for three or four episodes of hepatitis or three or four episodes of pneumonia. Do you ever, ever think about doing immunoglobulins and IgG subclasses? Yeah. Before we send them to you for the mm -hmm. ergonomy tubes. Uh, 
Usually not before, if it's a pretty straightforward kit, not before PE tubes, but if for some reason they're draining a lot after or it just doesn't quite seem to fit, um, or if they, you know, the kid, you know, I sort of have this group of, oh, that maybe this is like a CF or a PCD kid that just has, you know, socked in here, socked in here, and they're socked in here. Then I start thinking along, immune workup, CF workup, that kind of a thing, but for sort of uncomplicated recurrent media, I, I usually don't. Um, I don't think it would necessarily change the, the fact that we're probably going to be doing tubes. Recurrent pneumonias, yes. The trouble is, a lot of what I see, what gets referred as recurrent pneumonias, is probably much more likely to be atypical asthma than recurrent, particularly bacterial infections. Viral infections with some degree of crackles as well as wheezes. Because most of the time they're documented as having wheezes, but because they have crackles too and fever, they get labeled as pneumonia. And by the time that's happened four times, then they're referred for recurrent pneumonia. But then when you go back, they probably are kids who have asthma and not pneumonia. And then you sort of got to go back and undo the recurrent pneumonia issue. So yeah, certainly if they have recurrent uh, low bar, documented low bar pneumonia, uh, or you want to look for either an anomaly, some sort of an anatomic anomaly, or immune deficiency. Absolutely. I was going to say, everybody in this room, I think, trains when we didn't have very good uh, pneumococcal vaccine. And so we had to get chest x-rays more frequently. And therefore, we learned how to listen and compare the x-ray with what we saw. And we learned that the asthmatics often seem to have crackles, but the x-rays would be clear. And now we're training a whole group of doctors who have never verified their auspitary findings in the outpatient setting against a chest x-ray, um, only in the inpatient setting. I don't know how many uh, pneumonias, you admit me, you're not a lot anymore. Well, but uh, when they get into their, to their own well, I don't mean practice, to sound like that, but I do. <laughs> it's either going to be, you know, if it happens once in a child's lifetime, then it's not a big deal. If it, if it becomes a recurrent issue, then you got to think real hard about what is it that I'm diagnosing. And if it becomes a recurrent issue, then getting a chest x-ray is certainly an appropriate thing to do. Uh, to, to, to document what you're hearing and, and what, what you can what you can see on film. I just had one question. In one of your slides, uh, you mentioned the lowest dose of antibiotic. And that just goes against some of my thoughts on why we use high dose amoxicillin. So I thought you'd actually breed resistance if you use them. Oh, so that, that came out of the out of the guidelines. I know I can uh, look and see exactly what they say. Do you think otitis media in daycare children is a different disease than otitis media in kids that are not in daycare? Uh, I think it's it's probably the same disease. I think it's just the fact that their eustachian tube functions lousy because they've got the more bacteria and yeah yeah. Oh, do I think the path is different? Um, I don't know. I, I, I doubt it. I think it's just more, um, you know, more severe inflammatory changes within the nasopharynx that leads to the poor eustachian tube function that sets them up for it. I don't necessarily think there's a lot more. I don't. I don't know. I don't know if there's more pathogenic bacteria in that situation. I, I don't know. I don't know if that's been looked at in the pediatric literature. I don't think it has in otolaryngology. 
And are we going to get to the point with myringotamine tubes that we got to with tonsillectomies that five years after myringotamine tubes, the incidence of infection will be identical to the kids that didn't get the tubes versus the kids that did Well, it's funny. I mean, actually, if you read the, the guidelines, it talks about um, how the number of episodes of acute otitis media, it doesn't look like it's all that different after you put tubes in and stuff. I and mean, if you sort of take that, it's like, oh, geez, why are we doing it? It's the, it's the quality of life that improves so dramatically after you put P tubes. And they can still get ear infections. So, I, you know, I tell the families, like, you can still get ear, ear infections with tubes in place, but they're less painful. You don't get all that buildup. They're easier to diagnose because you see the drainage, and they're easier to treat. And so an acute otitis media in a child with a P tube that drains and just otorrhea in a child who has acute otitis media intact environment, those are very different sort of clinical things going on with a child. And I think, you know, I think most families are pretty happy when we when we do the tubes, even if they continue to have infections. They're usually, like I said, less frequent and less severe. At least that's been my practice. But um, you know, there are a lot of kids having P tubes placed out there, and I think I think part of the problem is that the diagnosis is so tricky, and that's why the guidelines talk so much about really make a careful diagnosis. In fact, the, the Academy of Otorhinology just put out new guidelines for P2 placement. And to be honest with you, one of the guidelines basically says, <laughs> it doesn't say this, but it, it, it implies that don't trust your referring pediatrician's diagnosis of acute otitis media. If you see a normal exam on, the, on your exam, you have to document an abnormal exam in an uncomplicated, low-risk child before you can really offer tubes. And I think that speaks to the, the, the perceived problem that we're just over-diagnosing it when we can't see. It's actually one of the things that somebody brought up the urgent care question before. I think there's actually a, a, one of the difficulties about urgent cares, walk-in clinics, and EDs. I'm not sure they're all up to the same level of, of you know, diagnosing acute otitis media. They're not necessarily all seeing ears on a regular basis in a pediatric practice. Um, so there are times when people are walking in and they happen to see you the next day and they're on antibiotics or an ear infection from the night before. It doesn't get resolved in 18 hours or 12 yeah. hours. It yeah. doesn't, no. It's not that quick. I know, it's amazing how that happens. They can see an early one way earlier than I could even notice that it's there. Really powerful. That's it. So good call, Becky. I oversimplified it. What it says is proper dosage of antimicrobial to be able to achieve minimal effective concentration of the side infection. So it, so it, it, it was uh, minimize exposure in terms of, of spectrum, uh, minimize short, shortest duration, shortest effective, shortest effective duration, and proper dosage as opposed to minimize dosage. Thank you. Good call. Okay, thank, thank you guys. You guys.